Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. In the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts now, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. We ask this through Christ, our rock and our redeemer, in whose name we pray, amen. Friends, listen now to the book that we love from John 20. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. He said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll never forget years ago taking a group of people with the church I was serving at the time, to be with one of our international partners in the shanty towns of Soweto in the city of Johannesburg, South Africa. While the group of people that I was serving was together in Soweto, we had the opportunity to visit a historic church community in that shanty town, which is a Roman Catholic church called the Church of Regina Mundi. We were there at that building, and as we had, a, we had a short tour of the place with a member of the church who served as a tour guide, he told us that that church was, was historic in its own context, in part because it served as a haven for, for children and students who were young, many of the young black South Africans who populated the shanty towns where they could come to for safety and when, in which they were, you know, they were often outside of the walls of that church, the, the objects and victims of, of violence from white South Africans during the decades of apartheid. And the guy that we were with told us the story of one particular day in June of 1976, in which a number of black South African students had fled to this church for safety, and the, the police actually, actually broke into the sanctuary, and they fired live ammunition at the students in the, in the sanctuary. And so the guide pointed out to us places in the room here on a rafter, there on a corner of the communion table, where you could actually still see the effects of bullets fired in that sanctuary. Now I can't tell you how powerful it was to be standing in a place where you knew 
that people had fled there for sanctuary, afraid for their lives. That's the room that Jesus' disciples are in on the evening of the first Easter. And so I want to invite you for a few minutes together with me to stand in that room in Jerusalem and to listen as the risen Jesus ambushes his first friends and followers risen from the dead and to listen to their conversation with an ear for the gift that Jesus gives and the mission that Jesus gives. Now, as I said, the text that we heard takes place on the evening of the very first Easter. Jesus' disciples and friends are hiding behind locks and doors with all the life knocked out of them. They had watched their beloved teacher die an unjust and terrible death three days prior. And now they they fear for their own lives because of their association with him. And then there is that moment of ambushed astonishment. They're sitting there in the room, and then somehow Jesus is there. They, they likely, probably to a person, think maybe they're having some sort of hallucination, but everybody's seeing the same thing. It seems like Jesus is there. And he says to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now, Jesus, as he says those words to his first followers, means a lot more than hello or, or what's up. As he says to them, peace be with you, he shows them the wounds of his hands and his side. These are the, are the first and most basic documents of Jesus' resurrection. The event that we followers of Jesus believe has irrevocably changed everything for everyone forever. Jesus here, risen from the dead, bears the scars of his battle with sin and evil and death. We have given him scars, but he gives us peace. We wounded him, but he healed us. As Paul would later write in the book of Colossians, through Christ God was pleased to reconcile with himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. That word peace, it calls to mind for the Jewish people who first heard those words from Jesus, the Hebrew concept of shalom, which means a lot more than just ceasefire. It means something more like wholeness, wellness. The point is that thanks to the death that Jesus suffered and the resurrection that he had just achieved, God is now giving that frightened room of followers and the entire universe shalom, wellness, healing. As a medieval follower of Jesus named Julian of Norwich will put it in her writings, thanks to Jesus and those scars, now all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. 
So I want to invite you, you know, as we reflect on this passage to begin with, to, to see those scars for yourself. To bring to those scars and to the risen Jesus who bears them, not just to those followers, but also to us and to the whole world. To bring your own anxiety, your own fear and terror, your own shame, the lingering guilt in your own story. And here, Jesus offer you the gift that he gives the world because of his death and resurrection. Peace. This is the gift that Jesus gives. Jesus gives us this gift so that we might come to share in the mission that we hear him offer to his first friends in this room as well. Jesus says to that room of confused, overjoyed, and still terrified followers, just as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Forty or so times in the Gospel of John, Jesus is described as the one who is sent by the Father. The point of what he says here is that now, on the other side of his resurrection, he is now sending his disciples, us, in other words, to continue his own mission in the world. As the Father has sent me, says Jesus, as the Father has sent me to show the heart of the living God to the world, as the Father has sent me to forgive those thought to be beyond the pale of God's concern or love, as the Father has sent me to bring healing to the sick, as the Father has sent me to feed a hungry world, as the Father has sent me to love the most unlovable, as the Father has sent me to lavish God's forgiveness on the whole world, even at the cost of my own life, as the Father has sent me to retain sin, to absorb the sting of the world's evil and heartbreak and death and not sting back. As the Father has sent me, so I send you, says Jesus. In mirroring fashion, Jesus sends us, his frightened friends, to do the same. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends us. Jesus, as he commissions us to this vocation, he gives us a share of his, of his own life. There are all these echoes in the, in the Gospel of John between the Jesus story that John tells us and the story of Genesis that begins the, that begins the Bible. John wants us to see that in Jesus, God is, is healing and renewing the whole beloved creation that he made in the first place. In the creation story, God breathes into the clay of earth and dirt and shapes a living person. Here, on the other side of the resurrection, Jesus breathes his own life into his followers to send us into the world that he's loved and died for. 
And so, for those of us that belong to Jesus, for those of us who, who are his followers, we have his own living self in our own lives and in our life together as a community. This is why the, the New Testament will repeatedly talk about the church as the body of Christ in the world, the ongoing presence of Jesus in the world. And the New Testament over and over again talks about the reality that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a member of the body of Christ. Now, when we, in our own cultural moment, when we hear that, that word member, we think about being a member of something, we mostly think about it in a transactional way. We think about being a, you know, being a, a member of a, of a gym and reserving the, reserving the classes or time slots that we want to work out, or being a, being a member of a golf club and being able to reserve tea times for a certain fee. But the New Testament means something very different when it talks about being a member of the body of Christ. When, when he uses the word member, he uses the word member that, that means like part of your physical body, like your thumb or your leg are a member of your body. The point is that we as a community are the ongoing presence of Jesus here and now in the world that he died and rose to love and to rescue. You know, I, I love how, uh, I love how a, uh, a 16th century follower of Jesus who was a, a mystic and a writer and a church leader named Teresa of Avila put this. She wrote a poem about this dynamic called Christ Has No Body. I want you to listen to how she puts this. She says, Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. You, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. I love how she says that. This is the reality for those of us who follow the risen Jesus. We now are the presence of our Lord and Savior and he sends us to the world that he loves to exhibit and demonstrate the grace that he earned for us. This is why we exist. We exist to share in the mission of Jesus to the world that he loves. We don't just exist for ourselves. We exist for the world that Jesus died and rose for. I love how one church leader named William Temple put this. He was the he was the archbishop, the, the leader of the Anglican part of the, the Christian family for a while in the, in the last century. And in one place in his writings, as he talks about why the church exists, he says this. He says, the church is the only human institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. I love how he says that. 
We exist primarily for the benefit because we share in the mission of Jesus. We exist primarily for the benefit of people who are not yet sitting in these pews. And as we enter upon our 60th year of life and step into the next phase of our life, I'll tell you that our focus as a church is to intentionally recover this sense of our calling. To intentionally turn the face of this community outward to share in the mission of Jesus to the world that he loves. There's a a natural evolution that that happens over time in which as as we grow, as, as time goes on, as we get more established, as we start more programs and such, our own concerns tend to, to dominate the, the life of our community. You know, our, own, our own internal preferences, our own internal arguments, the things that, you know, the things that, that we, we care about, that we want, that tends to, to dominate our attention and focus. And so we want to intentionally, as we step into the next season of our church's life, we, we want to intentionally turn ourselves outward again to recover this sense of sharing in Jesus' mission as Jesus' very presence to a world that he loves. As as church leaders, uh, the staff and and lay level, we've spent a lot of time talking intentionally about how we we cultivate as a community developing what what I'll call an outsider-first mindset. In other words, a mindset that, that always keeps in mind that, that we don't just exist for ourselves, but also exist for the sake of our friends and neighbors around the corner and around the world whom God loves and whom Jesus came for. To put this really practically for you as, you, as we wrap up, I want to invite you to just, to just reflect on the imagery that you heard in that poem from Teresa of Avila. You know, our calling as she describes it, is to be, the, to be the eyes and the hands of Jesus, here and now. now those, are, those are pictures of the way in which we're called to, in, in practical ways, demonstrate the compassion of our living Lord. So here's, here's the question. You know, how, how will a kid who grows up in a broken and impoverished home in the Tamarind Corridor of West Palm Beach, how, how will she come to know that there's anybody in the world that cares about her, let alone a God that cares about her? The answer of Jesus is you and me. We're how. How, how will a family hanging on in Matanzas in Cuba who lives just down the street from one of our partner communities and who lives their lives without access to some of the most basic medical resources. How will they come to know that there's a God out there who who cares about them? Jesus says, you and me. Or how? How will a young woman who's checked herself into the refuge ranch in West Palm because 
her life has spun out of control and addiction. And, and she wonders whether, whether she can actually experience a fresh start in life, a second chance in life. How will she ever come to know that? Jesus says, you and me. We're how. Jesus says when, when, when you, in practical ways, exhibit my compassion and care, when you do these things, because my living spirit is in you and working through you, in a mysterious way that you might not even notice all the time, when you do those things, I'm doing those things. This is our vocation, to be here and now, the feet and the eyes of Jesus' compassion. Jesus calls us in the, in the imagery in that poem to, to be his feet, to, uh, to be willing to go around the corner and to go around the world, to serve his loving purposes and to bear the good news of his grace. This is, this is why we care, as you heard in, in the, the video in which we had a conversation with someone like John Grenz, this is why we care as a church about encouraging and supporting young men and women to serve in God's kingdom around the corner from us and around the world in all sorts of different ways. You know, this, is, this is why, and this will be a little bit of a spoiler alert that we'll, you'll hear more about next week, but this is why as a, as a church community, we're gonna celebrate our 60th birthday, not only by just throwing a great party, but actually investing in starting two new communities of Jesus. One, in the city of Athens where, uh, where we've supported a church for the last 10 years. They're about to start a daughter church community and we're gonna, we're gonna support them as they start. And another around the corner from us up in the Jupiter Tequesta area. Uh, we'll be talking more about this next week but we're gonna, uh, we're gonna support and encourage and, and provide financial support and, and serve together to see a new community of Jesus started in the Jupiter and Tequesta area. Why are we doing that? Because we... We see ourselves as called to be the feed of Jesus here and now. We're called as well to be the, to be the voice of Jesus. As our lives are transformed by the living Jesus and his grace and love, he makes us his own voice to tell his story to our friends and neighbors that also need his grace and love. We want to be intentional about this as a community as well too. Yeah, this, is, this is why... As a community, we've, we've, over the last season of our life, worked a lot on cultivating what I'll, what I'll call a gospel hospitality culture, a culture that recognizes that we want to we make it normal that, that we're welcoming our friends and neighbors who also need Jesus' grace and love into this community on a, on a regular basis at every level of our life, in our worship, in our groups, and the various programs that we do. This is why, this is why we do that. Because we're called, to, we're called to tell the story of Jesus transforming grace and love to our friends and neighbors who need that same grace and love that we do. I had a conversation with a gentleman after I had been here for several months after one of our services who said to me, he said, listen, I, I haven't been to church in like a, like a long, long time. And I came here today and... And he said this, he said, it seemed like you guys knew that there would be people like me here today. I love that. 
And that's true. This is good news, I hope, if you're somebody for whom you're, you know, you're, you're here today kind of dipping your toe in the water. You wouldn't really consider yourself a church person. Uh, you're, you know, you've, your life has been a train wreck. If that's you, good news. We are the place for you. This is a church for people who aren't church people. This is a church for people who have made a wreck of their lives in all sorts of ways and yet are, are being changed and transformed by Jesus' love and grace. When I was in the sanctuary of that church in Soweto and our group was making our way towards the exit doors of the church of Regina Mundi, there was a woman in our group who stopped the tour guide and asked a question as we were preparing to exit about a statue of Jesus that stood right by the doors to enter and exit the sanctuary. She stopped the tour guide and asked why the statue was there in the shape that it was in. And as soon as the rest of our group stopped and looked at the statue, we also, we also realized why she asked the question. The statue was a, a marble depiction of Jesus in a tunic, like he's often depicted, with his hands extended as if they would be in blessing, as, as he's often depicted in artwork and such. But here was the catch. He didn't have any hands. Both of the, both of the, the parts of the marble statue that would have been his arms and hands from the elbow down were, were gone. They were both missing. And the woman asked why that was the, that was the case in the statue, and the tour guide told us that on that day in 1976, as police had stormed the sanctuary, one round of ammunition actually shot off one of Jesus' arms and hands. And then, with typical South African humor, he said after, after telling us that, so we decided to even it up and just cut off the other hand and arm. After we had a chuckle about that, the guy went on to tell us that the church actually did make that decision to cut off the other arm and hand of Jesus because they wanted a physical reminder for them as a community that they would see every time they entered worship and then exited worship of what they were called to be in their community. That they were called to be in that shantytown, the hands of the risen Jesus to care for the people that they were around. They wanted to see that as a reminder, as they entered worship and exited worship every week, this is why we are here. Friends, this is what Jesus tells us. This is why you are here as well, too. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.